Are you interested in joining a community of policy influencers working toward positive change? Consider Seton Hall University's results-driven executive graduate programs in international affairs. You can customize your studies through research in regional areas and specializations, including conflict management, global health security, and more. As a graduate candidate, you can leverage a collaborative and dynamic professional platform that includes one-on-one faculty mentorship, career workshops, international seminars, and discussions with global leaders on campus, at the UN headquarters in New York, and in Washington, D.C. The program is flexible. Study full-time or part-time, online or at the New Jersey campus just 14 miles from New York City. To learn more or sign up for a webinar, click the link in our episode description. Hello everyone, I'm Damila Labanja and welcome to this episode of Unscripted. And I am Keletuku Ogu. On today's episode, we will speak with Ambassador Harold Agiman. He is Ghana's permanent representative to the United Nations and president of the Security Council for November. We are looking forward to discussing Ghana's focus in the council as it takes over the monthly rotating presidency. On our mind as well is the impact of Russia's war on economies in the global south and growing instability in West Africa, where Ghana has been a bright star. We would also get to speak with the ambassador about his life in New York City. We also have Azamati Ebenezer, a Ghanaian scholar from the University College Oxford on today's episode. He specializes in international relations. start off with you, Ambassador Agima. What are your signature events for the month? There will be two signature events that we'll be holding in the month of November. Um, the first theme um, relates to peace building and sustaining peace, which will be an open debate on the 3rd of November. The backdrop of this debate is the situation that is on the continent of Africa, and more specifically the situation in the Sahelian region. Of, um, of Africa. What we've seen over the years is that even as peace operations are being undertaken, it is not as effective as it could be, especially because of some of the non-supportive elements that are not in those operations. If you take the case of Mali, for instance, you realize that even as peace operations are being conducted, there's also the need for other and supportive actions by the United Nations and international community to develop resilience. Um, issues of social services, issues of state presence. And so what we're trying to do in this debate is to bring up um, some of the issues that are normally put at the tail end. Um, the resilience building initiatives that are required alongside peace operations. The second um, priority, which is the second signature event that we would focus on in the month of November, relates to threats to international peace and security, and specifically on the topic of counterterrorism in Africa, imperative for peace, security, and development. 
Um, we've seen that UN peace operations, particularly peacekeeping missions that have been deployed, have not been mandated in a way that enables them to effectively counter terrorism. Um, UN peace operations are more or less supposed to have certain principles. They are supposed to have the consent of the parties. They are supposed to not have uh, the use of force except in self-defense of the mandate and sometimes to a limited extend the protection of civilians. Another aspect of this debate that we seek to draw out of the council's um, discussions would be how the council is able to have some aid support for a predictable, sustainable, and adequate funding for such regional-led efforts. Lastly, there would be another issue which we think is important, and that is a report that we had asked of the Secretary General in May of this year. And that report is due by Monday. And so we would have opportunity to consider this report on the 22nd of November. Um, and we hope that that report would um, outline for members of the council a clear sense of the situation of maritime piracy, its contextual uh, basis, but also a sense of how we can resolve it, uh, leveraging the instruments of international response that are available to member countries through the different uh, international system arrangements. And also a sense of clarity on whether um, there is a clear link between the issue of maritime piracy and terrorism in the Sahel. Uh, our own preliminary assessments suggest that there's some linkage and that the terrorists in the Sahel have a, an interest in getting access to the sea, which would help them in terms of logistical purposes um, to be able to mobilize themselves more effectively, but also to mobilize funding from kidnappings and uh, looting of oil tankers and things like that, which have become very rampant in the Gulf of Guinea region. Thank you so much, Ambassador. And welcome in Azamati. So what do you make of um, Ghana's plans for the month? Are they suitable for Ghana? And are they suitable for the continent at this time? In normal times, they would have been feasible to do in the council. Um, and I think it's still possible to do if proper diplomacy is conducted. I can foresee some challenges uh, that are going to face Ghana uh, as president of the council and the entire Security Council in, in trying to force through this agenda. The first challenge I see is getting uh, Russia on board. If you observed what happened at the council uh, last month and early this month, you realize that many African countries, at least 27 African countries, voted against Russia at the General Assembly. And of course, um, diplomats will say, oh, these things, you know, don't count and all of that. But in international relations, these things count a lot in the sense that Russia will now be looking out for which countries support us, which countries don't support us. Is it necessary for us to support such policies and programs as being put forward by the African group at the council? If it's necessary, how do we benefit from that? Uh, thank you so much, um, Azamati. Ambassador, um, the Russia war is um, affecting economies, I mean, around the world. 
how much of the effect is related to imposition of sanctions on Russia um, by the global north and Russia's inability to um, export certain foodstuffs like grains and, and, and fertilizers? Um, thank you. Um, I think it would be presumptuous of anyone, uh, on the part of anyone to claim that they have a clear understanding of how much of the impacts of the um, unilateral sanctions that have been imposed by the United States and other countries against Russia has affected um, the, um, the, 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 the global food situation or affected um, any other situation in relation to energy. The data that at least some of us have seen does not clearly delineate between what um, is attributable to sanctions and what is attributable to the war effort itself. If there's a war, certainly there'll be an impact because it disrupts the normal flow of trade, the normal flow of uh, goods and services. For instance, insurance cover for uh, shipping will go up and uh, these are things that uh, we would experience. And so all these would affect the global food and energy situation, as well as even the financial situation. But to what extent we cannot at this stage um, precisely indicate. You know, when you impose sanctions, sometimes there are also what we call, what they call secondary sanctions. That is when those who have to conform to it also um, try to ensure that in order not to fall foul of the rules, uh, they restrict themselves from being available to effect uh, regular trade. And so those are elements that also occur. But I, I, in my estimation, I think the major impact that has come from this is the war itself. And um, of course, the sanctions may have an impact, but not as much as the war itself has had. Um, interesting that um, you, you brought in um, the issue of um, sanction, Ambassador. I mean, and I'm, I'm also wondering if um, the use of sanction on Russia has um, been effective in any, any way since this war started. Um, I think that the jury is still out and so we cannot tell how effective it's been. But certainly um, these are not multilateral sanctions. These sanctions are unilateral sanctions that have been imposed by individual countries and group of countries. And so our position on that is different from what uh, in the generality of sanctions as we know it um, under the multilateral context. In which case, when you come under the multilateral context, we are very supportive of it because we think that sanctions play a useful role in that it's one of the tools available to, especially the Security Council and other international institutions to be able to modify and the erring behavior of a state in relation to its um, conformity with um, agreed norms and standards. Um, uh, the other is also mediation, and it has to be used. It has to be used um, with a lot of common sense behind, so that you don't overplay it. Sanctions also need to be targeted, and this is a this is a, an established um, point of departure over the years, um, so that innocent populations and third parties are not affected unduly by the sanctions that are being imposed. Um, there are merits to it in terms of um, the way and manner in which sanctions are imposed, but sometimes you can also legitimately question whether those sanctions are useful, uh, whether they are intended for the overall interest of all of us or the parochial interest of a few. 
Thank you very much, Ambassador. Azamati, after the UN General Assembly condemned Russia for trying to annex territories in Ukraine, Russia responded by attacking Ukraine's power stations and power plants. And like, do you even think that these condemnations are working? How effective are the sanctions? Are they making Putin more belligerent, more aggressive? To some extent, I'll agree with the ambassador that, yes, it's hard to determine how effective these sanctions have been so far. And in any case, uh, I don't think we're in a position to know how much the sanctions are affecting Russia, uh, because the Russian state is some way, somehow, hermetically sealed, sealed uh, from the eyes of the public. So it's pretty hard for us to know how much the sanctions are working. I, I will look at your question from two angles. The first is condemnation by the General Assembly. What does that do? Russia is a permanent member of the Security Council. Yes, when, you're, when you want to talk about your legitimacy, international norms, etc. yes, you could say that, okay, if you have 143 countries voting against you uh, at the General Assembly, that is large enough. Think about it this way. The first condemnation, vote of condemnation, was 143 countries. The second condemnation was 93 countries. Given that a large number of countries chose to abstain, speaks volumes to what is going on. It tells us what people are beginning to think about the war. I think it, it tells us about how much unpopular these one-dimensional UN decisions are, are, are becoming. And the other thing we need to bear in mind uh, for me is also the fact that if the UN General Assembly continues in this way, I think it risks becoming a laughing stock uh, to the public because, I mean, you continue voting to condemn, Russia continues to do what it's doing and does it even more. Uh, what does that tell you? It tells you that you know, apart from the Security Council, Russia rarely respects the General Assembly because in any case, the General Assembly's decision doesn't carry much weight as the Security Council's decision does. If the UN becomes a laughing stock, then the systems that we set up after 1945 to be controlling the international system are at a risk of losing their grip over the international system. Um, decisions about this war I don't think are worth taking at the UN. It's better that proper diplomatic negotiations take place. The other angle that I want to look at this from is, um, we were talking about sanctions earlier. Clearly, African countries have been affected by, by this war as a result of the sanctions that have been imposed on, on Russia. Now, if you are going to vote at the General Assembly, in support of those who are instituting these sanctions. I would have thought that you would have also thought about your interest. These African countries would, would think about their interest and ask themselves, what is in this for us? If we are going to vote in support of the US and the European Union, then we must as well find a way of negotiating with them to see how the, the sanctions would, would not affect us that much. Dami, Azamati has answered the next question that we were going to ask, which is how do African governments 
Or how can African governments shield themselves from the effect of this war, be the war, be the sanctions? So let me react a, um, a bit to that. Uh, but let me also uh, bring a bit of precision on the General Assembly votes that took place on the 2nd of March and the subsequent one which took place later, uh, and then the recent one that took place in October 12. Um, the 2nd of March vote was 140 countries voting for, 38 abstaining, and five voting against. The first uh, vote related to making a determination that the act of Russia against Ukraine was one of aggression. The second issue that was voted for related to the suspension of Russia from the Human Rights Council. And there you found a diminishing of the number of votes. And then the third issue that was recently voted for related to the annexation of the territories in Kashon and Luhansk, Donbass and others, which have been annexed by the Russians. And that came to 143, 35 and five. But if you see the differences in votes, uh, rather than the interpretation that has been put to it, I see that a lot of the countries were standing with the charter of the United Nations and its principles and purposes. Um, the aggression that has taken place against Ukraine is not necessarily one of Europeans against Russia. It is Russia against the Charter of the United Nations. I do appreciate the point that is made in terms of um, this issue and how it affects countries. Uh, each country has to take care of itself, but even also uh, in these current circumstances, there's been a lot of effort that has been done by the United Nations, including through the Secretary General's effort to ensure that the food issue is resolved in a way that satisfies the needs of many member countries that the energy issue is addressed and that the financial challenges that has been occasioned, not necessarily only by the war, but also by the impact of the COVID pandemic are addressed. But I think that even more importantly as Africa, uh, we are a continent with 60% of the arable lands of the world. And for us, I think that these are also opportunities that we need to take advantage of to rejuvenate our agricultural production system. We'll be right back. Are you looking for a talk show featuring leading global voices? Do you want to learn more about how international issues directly affect people locally? Global Connections Television presents the insights of global influencers at no cost to viewers and programmers. GCTV is independently produced and reaches more than 70 million potential viewers worldwide each week. The show covers everything from human rights to climate change, from peace and security to empowering women and girls. It features guests such as Dr. Jane Goodall, former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Mary Robinson, and Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary. The show also hosts expert voices from the private sector, academia, and labor and environmental movements. GCTV is available to public television media outlets, universities, and service clubs for distribution. To watch the show or find out more, click the link in our episode description. Now, back to the show. But let's move away from 
uh, the UN a bit, and let's talk about um, the ECOWAS. There's been, I mean, there's been lots of coups and, and counter coups in, in, in West Africa. In, in, I mean, since 2010, there's been about 20 of it. How effective or how relevant do you think the ECOWAS still is in the sub-region of West Africa? Ambassador Sir. I think ECOWAS, perhaps more than many regional economic communities is one of the most uh, driving wrecks that we have on the continent. And it's because of the actions it takes. It has one of the strongest regimes when it comes to uh, democracy and governance issues. And um, I believe that it is also the community that has tried more than perhaps many to ensure that it takes along its people with it. And that is why in the past uh, vision that the community had, it was called ECOWAS of the people because um, the people of ECOWAS um, are the ones who make the community strong. Um, I think that to some extent, the unconstitutional changes that have occurred is also reflective of the need for us to review our governance and democratic norms and values. And that's why when Ghana was the chair of ECOWAS, we pushed that the ECOWAS uh, protocols uh, on, on good governance and democracy be re-looked at in a way that would relate to the aspirations of all of us who are in the community. But if you look at ECOWAS efforts that has been done compared to others in the, in the African continent, that are regional economic communities in the African continent, I would say that ECOWAS has done extremely well and needs to be encouraged even further. Even the continental body some, sometimes lags behind ECOWAS in terms of its quick response against uh, unconstitutional changes in government and, uh, uh, and the coup d'etat that you, you have uh, mentioned. Mm, Azamati, I'll come to you. So, aside from having coups and counter coups in, um, in ECOWAS, we have governments um, who have tried to extend their term. In Ivory Coast, Alassane Ouattara, who won his seat on the support of ECOWAS and support of protesters in his country, is running a third term. I heard that Makisau also wants to run a third term. Do you feel that ECOWAS is becoming a relic? What's the future of ECOWAS? It's bleak, to say the least. Um, to the extent that in the land of the blind, one-eyed man is the king, I would want to agree a little bit with the ambassador that, yes, compared to the other sub-regional organizations, ECOWAS has done well, but in the 90s. But... In all honesty, to say ECOWAS has failed is even an understatement. When the uh, institution of ECOWAS was set up in 1975, what was it meant to be? It is, the, the, in fact, the abbreviation ECOWAS is Economic Community of West African States. So in the first place, the institution of ECOWAS was supposed to concern itself with the economic integration 
of the West African subregion. ECOWAS failed at that. So farewell, ECOWAS in the 90s began to be a conflict resolution institution. So if you remember ECOMOG in 1991 in Liberia, uh, ECOWAS was one of the first uh, sub-regional organizations to try to mobilize uh, military enforcement to, to deal with a, a civil war in, in, in a country, which was commendable. But was that the original aim of ECOWAS? Surely not. Fine. Uh, the argument could be made that um, politics is inextricably linked with economics. So the political conditions of a country or countries definitely would affect economic situations. But I don't suppose the ECOWAS Charter has been, has been uh, uh, reviewed and properly amended to suit the changing conditions which it has tried to adapt itself to. So clearly, of course, ECOWAS for me has failed. And secondly, look, ECOWAS is obviously becoming a relic because people are beginning to see the, the level of hypocrisy uh, embedded in the organization. What Watara did in Ivory Coast was a constitutional coup and ECOWAS sat there and watched him do it. So I guess in, in places like Mali, places like Burkina Faso, et cetera, ECOWAS is losing any relevance it had because of course these people are watching on and are seeing what, what is being done in other countries and they think, well, look, rather than asking ECOWAS to come and help us, maybe it's better to rely on the Russians or rely on other uh, external forces, which we, we think can be more helpful to us than, than, than ECOWAS. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I, I, I think one um, point that you raised that um, stood out uh, very clearly is um, the changing in the focus of ECOWAS. And should the um, um, constitutional guiding document of um, ECOWAS be amended? I mean, I, I think that's a conversation that um, we need to have in the subregion. Uh, but there's still uh, a few issues that I, I'd, I'd like the ambassador um, to touch on, which is um, one is the um, COP2027. Uh, um, Ghana was producing around 176 thousand barrels um, of oil per day as, as of 2021. And it's projected to go up to 420,000 by 2023. Um, with the call for Africa to reduce um, carbon emission and, and the increase of flood drought uh, that we have seen this year across the continent. How do you feel about um, Ghana expanding it's fossil fuel industry. First of all, we need to remember history because uh, without it, we get lost. And it's important to understand that Africa has been the least contributor of global gas emissions, um, presently contributing less than 3%, 4% of global gases. And so when others who have actually developed their countries on the back the industrialization that has caused global gas emissions tells you to reduce your activities for your development so that you can meet targets. That would be an unfair basis for starting an argument. And that is the position of Ghana that 
uh, we need to discuss it seriously, uh, especially if those who have caused the greatest emissions are not ready to put in the money that they've committed themselves to, to support the countries that need to ad adapt, to do adaptation, and more, more, more so to even go into the area of mitigation. So for Ghana, I think that we believe that it's important that we serve our development needs as best as we can uh, in a way that makes sense to our own national aspirations. We need to rebalance that narrative and COP27 certainly provides us all an opportunity, those of us in Africa, to point out to those who have committed um, the problem that we find ourselves in, that they have a greater responsibility. All of us do, but they have a greater responsibility to ensure that we address it. And they should do so by showing, first of all, their commitment by making available the resources required by all of our countries to do adaptation. Thank you so much, Ambassador. Before we call it quits, we'd like to know and would like our audience to see that part of you that they usually would not see by watching you in the UN. So tell us, how did you get into diplomacy and what's your honest view of New York? I mean, I hear it's the Lagos of the USA, but pardon my metaphor, I give you Lagos, so yeah. My entry into diplomacy perhaps is um, because of my love for the world and to be engaged with the world. And as a child growing up, um, at that time, we didn't have internet, we didn't have um, a lot of access to the world, except through uh, shortwave radios, um, where you listen to BBC, you listen to uh, Voice of America, you listen to Radio Moscow, and uh, other stations around the world. So what happened is that the radio brings the world into your living room, if you are fortunate to have one, or into your porch or stoop, uh, if if you have one hanging on your on on your porch or stoop as a as a set, but in terms of um, New York, I have lived here before um, in my previous um, postings to New York about twenty something years ago. I was in New York. Um, it's a city to love most of the time, but you can also uh, it can also be a city that can get on your edge because it's a city that is fast paced. And um, uh, you, need, you need to adapt to it. But I think in all, New York is a global city. And that is what I've noticed, especially since I've come back. And sometimes when I walk the streets, which I do often, you would hear different cultures, different languages. When you, when you, when you eavesdrop into people walking by and having conversations. And so it's a city that um, epitomizes its name, the Big Apple. Uh, it's a melting pot of all cultures, and I think that it's a, it's a city one can only love and go to admire. I, I cannot agree less um, with your assessment of New York. I mean, I, I tell my friends that mm. New York City is what Lagos could really be. I mean, I've lived in Lagos mm. all my life and mm. haven't also lived in, in, in New York for, for some time. I'm like, this is what Lagos could really be with exactly. infrastructure and all of it. Um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. thank you so much for that. Um, I'll move to Azamati. I'm, I'm just curious, uh, what does your name mean? Azamati, standing with standing or situations. Ah, interesting. Um, so you get an opportunity to ask the ambassador one question and one question only. 
So um, take your chance. <laughs> he has asked me a lot of questions already. <laughs> <laughs> in his responses. But, but this, is, this is one dedicated to him on this episode. So he still got to ask that specific question. Oh my goodness me. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be best if the ambassador and I had a chance to, to meet on some good red bottles and then we can have more questions for ourselves. But um, <laughs> I, I, I would love that and I'll, I'll take up that offer. If you're in New York, uh, 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 let me know, and uh, uh, I would certainly be happy to uh, have that uh, conversation about the red bottles that you advocate for. And I'm sure through, through our, our facilitators, we can, we can establish contact. Okay, definitely. That's the end of the show today. Um, we had Ambassador Harold Ayiman. He is Ghana's permanent representative to the United Nations and he will be the president of the Security Council in November. And Azamati Ebeniza, uh, a scholar in international relations, studying for his PhD at Oxford. And we spoke about the influence of Russia-Ukraine war on the cost of living in Ghana and elsewhere around the world, the use of sanctions, coups in West Africa, and the strength of the economic community of West Africa. Those are some of the issues that we have discussed today um, on the podcast. Thank you so much, Ambassador. Thank you so much, our very own expert, Azamati. This episode was presented by Damilola Banjo and Kelechuku Ogo. Kelechuku Ogo was the producer. Music was by Poddington Bear. Alison Lecce was the fact checker. And the editor is Dulce Lineback. This episode has been made possible with support from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the Open Society Foundation, and you, our generous readers. Unscripted is available where you get podcasts. If you liked today's show, please share it with all your friends and rate us on iTunes. Thank you.